0: When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites; they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into the inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless reputa- rap- repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you.
1: Don't you wish that every night, right before bed, Drew could come over to your house and read to you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always just think. Just I'm so jealous of Karis and Asher, right? No, I'm jealous of Karis and Asher. They it's just he does <laughs> so great. There are. Before I jump in, let me uh, let me just say a word of. Of uh, thank you and uh, admiration and friendship for our dear friend Chris Calvey, his last Friday night among us. I know he hasn't been here a long time, but he's moving to Hawaii in a couple weeks, and uh, I'll be the only one that sees him from that point forward. But uh, he was a Bible study shepherd here last year and has served in the college ministry faithfully since, since the beginning, right? Or not since the beginning, but for Pretty quite, close. A, quite a good deal of time. So I I just watched you up there on Sunday morning this last week and was praying for you and thanking the Lord for how He's grown you, watching you um, go from a, a little guy who had written a paper on why you should wear a suit to church every Sunday, <laughs> a position paper, to uh, to actually becoming a humble man of God, serves Him, loves Him, and uh, man, you are you are one of the most faithful guys I know, and uh, I am. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to serve alongside you and be part of your life. So we will miss you, but uh, want to thank you publicly and esteem you for all that you've done in our ministry and in our church. So it won't be the same without you around here.
0: Probably anyway. be
1: better. It, it could be better, yeah. It could be better. Uh, just one less Calvi around. We're getting one by one. We're sending them away to Hawaii. Ship them, them, the them off. Ship them off. Well, there are many reasons why people would not decide to become a Christian. And maybe in your life, if you look back at the days before you were saved, and try to think back, what was it that kept me from Christ? uh, There's a lot of things that would come to mind. For some of you, it's too early to even remember a life without Jesus in that sense. For some, it was just a hard heart that was so in love with your sin, or maybe a lack of having heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that that there is a God, that we are sinners, <clears throat> that He sent a solution to our sin in the, in the form of His Son, Christ, who lived perfectly, died on our behalf and in our place, rose again, thus conquering death, and has given us His life, and freedom from our sin. That's the story of Christianity. Maybe you've never heard that before. Uh, I suppose there are a myriad of reasons, but I found an article that said there are three main reasons that people give when asked why they are reluctant to become a Christian. I just want to give them to you tonight. We're going to talk about the third one. The first one is this. It's, I would say it's the problem of evil. The problem of evil. Trying to answer the question, why does God allow so much pain and suffering in this world, right? It's a difficult question even for Christians to answer. If God is good, and this is the premise, if God is good and he's loving and he's wise, and if God, God is also at the same time all-powerful and in control of all that happens, then why does a good, loving, wise God allow such difficulty in people's lives? There are earthquakes, Tsunamis. There are plane crashes. There are crazy men who enter schools and open fire at children. On a broader level, there is war, which brings devastation, starvation, disease, and ultimately the question of death it plagues the mind. Why would God allow those things if he's good? It was the death of his 10-year-old daughter, that brought Charles Darwin to the precipice of the theory of evolution some 20 years before he published his papers. It's what got him to the point when he saw his 10-year-old little Annie die that his mind began to spin as to this is not right. There must be other things controlling us. God can't really be there. The scientist and atheist Richard Dawkins explains a world without God by saying... Quote, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or any reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And and this is the issue that many, and I would say the bone that many choke over in coming to God. I look around the world and it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Why would God allow this to happen? (coughs) And that, like a mailman chasing or a dog chasing a mailman, leads to the second one, which would be unanswered prayer. People are reluctant to come to Christ because God doesn't answer prayer, right? It's one thing to pray for an A. It's one thing to pray, Lord, get me out of this ticket right now. It's one thing to pray for a job or for a date with someone that you like. It is a completely different thing to pray for a loved one who is serving our country in Afghanistan only to find out that a landmine went off or a sniper um, fired a, a, a gun and killed them in action or it's another thing to pray for someone who has cancer or some other terrible disease, praying with all of your might, with all of your vigor, uh, for, for healing, or for that sick family member to be made well, only to have a condition worsen. It's, another, it's something to pray for a marriage that continues to struggle, that's disintegrating, praying, God, save my marriage help my parents, this is crazy, it's, it's falling apart, help this to go, only to find as if God hears nothing. So the thing is, if God hears everything and nothing escapes his notice, which is what the Bible says, and if he does care for his children, if he is good, loving, and wise, like we already said, if he is the great shepherd and the great physician, then why does he choose not to answer those requests? Right, that's tough. I brought one man to ask this question. Is prayer just a sanctified way of talking to myself? Is there even a God out there listening? Those are are difficult things to grapple with. And I bet some of you have worked through those issues. You kind of have to, to come to Christ if you're a thinking person, right? To work through the realities that we see around us and not just ignore them and say, well, it's Christian bliss. Give me my cup of Starbucks and I'm heading off to church on Sunday at 10 o'clock. Well, there's a third one, and I think this is, well, this is obviously, like I said, where we'll spend our time tonight. It's that the church is full of hypocrites. You hear this all the time. Well, I don't want to go there. Christians are hypocrites. You say one thing and do something completely different. And this is the thing that turns most people away from Christianity. It's not the religion. It's not about Jesus. It's other Christians, right? Church is full of people who profess Christ. and I, By the way, I should use the word Christian in parentheses there. Of course, but church is full of people who profess Christ with their mouths, but deny Him with with their lives. They wear and tote the badge mm-hmm. of Christian. Of course, I'm a Christian, right? I live in America. I go to church some Sundays. I to so have a Bible. I'm hoping that God is gonna, you know, see that, and I'm not gonna spend eternity in hell. It's my ticket out. But the faith is only skin deep, and their relationship with God is more of kind of a sense of obligation and duty than really a relationship. One Hindu man said this, quote, if this conversation you speak about is truly supernatural, excuse me, if this conversion you speak about is truly supernatural, then why is it not more evident in the lives of so many Christians that I know? End quote. If God really works in people's lives, then why isn't that transformation there in a lot of people? It seems like there are a lot of people that call themselves Christians that live just like everybody else. And I would agree that it's hard to argue with that. Right? Churches in our city are packed on Sunday mornings. People dress nicely. They say their warm hellos. They talk in their best Christian lingo. They sing their songs. They raise their hands. They throw some money in the basket when it goes by. But then they leave. And they cut people off on the road. And they give the one-finger salute. These are the same people that cheat on their wives, cheat on their taxes, watch pornography, use profanity... And the list goes on and on. You've heard the old Billy Graham adage where he said, if you find a a perfect church, don't join it. Because you'll, you'll ruin it, right? And that's the case. But the church is full of hypocrites. And the reason the church is full of hypocrites is because every person is a hypocrite. We are. This room is full of hypocrites. I will admit to you openly in studying this passage and this text, I am a hypocrite. And I hate it. But it's so deeply ingrained in who I am and my desire to please other people, which we'll look at in a little bit, which is really just a desire to see myself lifted up. But we are hypocrites. Uh, Too often we focus, focus on our spiritual performance and what others think about us more than on pleasing God. Our audience becomes the people around us and not on our Heavenly Father. At the very heart of it, hypocrisy then is a man-centered religion. It is its own religion that seeks to impress others, but ignores God. Have you struggled with hypocrisy, with self-righteousness before? Do you struggle with it now? We could call it man-pleasing. We could call it, like I said, self-righteousness. We could call it lip service or fair if you're not sure if this is an issue for you or you're kind of tuned out already, let me identify some areas for you to evaluate, see if we can move this along. Do you ever come to Friday nights or go to Radix or even a Sunday morning because it's expected of you? Because somebody's going to ask you why you weren't there and, and you, want, you don't want them to think, well, I just didn't really want to go, right? Do you ever read your Bible just so you can say, I did it or check it off your list? Do you take sermon notes because you really intend to look at them and use them or because there are people around you and you want to fit into the Christian mold? Don't put them away. It's okay. (laughs) Do you make sure people see you dropping money in the offering basket when it goes by? You throw in a lot of change so it makes a noise. (laughs) Do you try to serve in conspicuous ministries so that people can see you? If there's a sign-up list going around, you make sure your name is at the top of that thing so you know a lot of people are going to see, look who's serving this weekend. Right here, this guy. Hmm. Do you volunteer to do some tasks and then proceed to tell everyone how difficult it was and how much time it took you? Oh, yep, I served at that event last weekend. Man, it was brutal. We were there all day long. I mean, I'm so sore and so tired and so sunburned for all that service I did for the Lord while everybody else was just relaxing. Wow. But the Lord worked. Yeah, it was great. Do you pray out loud in a way that shows off your Christian vocabulary or how mature you are preaching a puritanical sermon in your prayers for the sake of the people listening? Or are you praying for your Father who Season secret and your Father who sees those things will reward you. Do you share in small groups about how great your week was when really it was miserable? I, I Even as a staff person, I've done this. I've preached this way before. Why well, have? It's Friday night. I have to preach. Right? My heart's not right or ready but I have to preach and that is like a, it's like a, an uh, exponential advancer of hypocrisy when you step over that and you lead a small group saying hey how's everybody's walk with the Lord going this week when yours is just absolutely in the toilet or as a, as a person in the small group you share because you feel like I gotta share no one else is sharing so I'm gonna say something and you're shading the truth and working the lingo so nobody can really tell how bad things are but yeah, we we play all of these games right <laughs> Some of some of us put our hands up in worship, even when your heart's far from God, just because it's what you do on Sundays, and people expect that, and so you do it. Or you, sometimes you'll take communion in an unworthy manner because everyone around you gets up and you don't want them to see that you're not ready, and so you allow yourself to be pressured into that from externals. Or maybe sometimes you cry during worship, and you make it a point to wipe your eyes so that everybody can see <sighs> that you've been crying, so it's just... You know, everyone around you will know you've been affected by what's happening. You tell people how tired you are and how late you stayed up doing something for the Lord. Oh, it was just such a late night. I'm, I'm beat, but you know what? I'm I'm better than everybody else here because look, I had stayed up later. Whatever. How about this one? You use social media to show your amazing spiritual life. You post a picture of that perfect cup of coffee. There's just like a little heart or a leaf on top, right in the in the foam. The Bible's Bible's open right next to it, a little steam's coming off of it. The sun is coming down off the table reflecting. There are not just one pen on top, but a couple of pens kind of juxtaposed over a verse that's been underlined. And right next to that is the contemporary best selling Christian books sitting there, not opened but closed next to the Bible, right? And uh and the small muffin there to show that this is early in the morning breakfast and And then there's, I mean, this is kind of old now, but there's that caption, soul food, right at the bottom, right? Or something (laughs) stupid like that. And really, while you may have read your Bible and gotten into that best-selling Christian self-help book, in actuality, you were more interested in showing off your super cool picture to everybody that you were up early doing this thing, rather than just being with the Lord. The bottom line is that we want others to think highly of us, and it's not comfortable to admit our sin, and our shortcomings. We want to be liked. its human nature. And so we perform for others, oftentimes living our Christian lives for their eyes and not for his eyes. And it's not a small issue. This is not a passing thought in the New Testament. This is a big one. And it's something that deserves our full attention. And as Jesus continues into the second chapter of the greatest sermon ever preached, as we begin Um, chapter six, he's going to show us that hypocrisy is a damning sin. It's a sin that he hates and one that brings his judgment and not his favor. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in speaking of this verse in this chapter, says this, quote, This is a painful chapter. I sometimes think that it is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire scripture. It probes and examines and holds a mirror up before us, and it will not allow us to escape. End quote. Jesus closed out chapter five by revealing that if we are to be his followers, and if we are truly to be part of his kingdom, then we must keep his commandments. We've spent quite a good deal of time in those six commandments. But remember, do not hate, do not lust, do not divorce, do not make false vows, do not take revenge, and, and we saw last time, love your enemies. He has laid these out with great clarity and focus, extolling the Old Testament and helping us to rightly interpret the law because rightly understanding the law leads to right relationship with God and with others. But watch this. This is amazing. Without skipping a beat, he jumps now into chapter six and hot on the heels of that. He is saying that it's not just enough to do those things. It's not just enough to keep the law of God. You must do the right things, watch this, with the right motives. Oh, and it just goes deeper and deeper. It's not enough just to obey. Your heart must also be right or all of it's in vain. This, I mean, If you think about 1 Corinthians 13, you could do all of these things. Deliver your body to be burned, right? Give all you have to the poor. Go live in Tibet by yourself live as a monk, all those different things. But if you don't have love or if you don't have the proper heart motivation, it says there you are nothing more than a banging gong or a clanging cymbal. Worthless. Annoying, even. <clears> or <throat> another illustration is uh, out of First Samuel 15. You guys remember the story. You don't have to turn there, but Samuel instructed Saul, King Saul, to wipe out the Amalekites. They were, they were a people that, that were detestable in God's eyes. And God said, I'm done with them. I'm bringing judgment, and it's coming through the Israelite army. I want you to kill King Agag. I want you to kill every soldier, every man, every woman, every child. I want you to exterminate even their livestock. I want the very memory of the Amalekites to be wiped from the face of the earth. God's judgment fell upon them like it fell upon The the people in Genesis 6 with the flood, and like the people in Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah, God wanted to wipe them out in judgment. Samuel tells Saul, "Go, go and do the word of the Lord. Saul goes. The text says that they were given into the hand of the king. But instead of obeying everything, Saul left King Agag alive. He kept all the best livestock. So that when Samuel drew near... The text says he heard the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen. When asked to justify his disobedience, Saul said, whoa, well, we, we kept the best livestock clearly so we could offer it to the Lord as a sacrifice, right? That's why we kept the best animals. We got rid of all the mangy animals, but all the best we kept. So, so, I mean, we're gonna give it to God. Yeah, yeah, that's it to the Lord. Samuel's response in verse 22 is awesome. He says to Saul, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken or to listen than the fat of rams. You got that? Obedience and a right heart in doing that is better than giving sacrifice or doing more and more good things. It was that sin that cost Saul a kingdom. And as a footnote, at the end of the chapter, it says that Agag felt pretty good. He was locked up. He's like, well, the text actually says the bitterness of death had passed him. He thought, I'm going to be okay. But then Samuel summons him, and he he came cheerfully, thinking he was spared. But then it says that Samuel took Agag, and he took a sword, and he hacked him to pieces before the Lord. Which has nothing to do with this, but it's just really cool. (laughs) But the point, coming back to Matthew 6, is that obedience from a wrong heart is disobedience. Do you get that? Obedience from a wrong heart is disobedience. Same thing I say to Zoe and Haley all the time. You need to obey Daddy, but not just doing it. You need to obey with a happy heart. Happy heart. I tell Leslie the same thing. Sometimes happy heart. (laughs) (laughs) Obedience from a wrong heart is disobedience. Now, there's a perfect comparison between... 5.16, chapter 5, verse 16, and chapter 6, verse 1. So you guys are in the text, right? So look at 5.16. And this is an interesting question. It says this. Jesus says there, let your light shine before men. In a place that men live so men can see you, right? And and live in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So here we're instructed to live a life that intentionally causes others to look into our life and notice our good deeds. But then look at 6.1. Okay, 20 verses later, beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Beware of living your life and doing these good deeds before men. To be noticed by them, he says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now at first this appears to be a contradiction, right? Am I supposed to let people look at my life or am I not supposed to let people look at my life? He's saying be careful and beware in six one. but the contradiction is easily explained when we look at the motive behind the act. God always cares about the heart more than it would seem the action. 5.16, what is the motivation? Do your good deeds so that they will what? They will glorify your Father in heaven. The the purpose of the Christian and the desire of the Christians to see God honored. But look at 6.1. The motivation there is what? To be what? To be noticed by men. It's interesting, isn't it? Do your works... One says so that you'll be glorified, and the other says so that God will be glorified. And in the text before us tonight, Jesus lays out a strong warning about seeking to glorify yourself in your life versus putting God on display in your life. It's a strong warning about hypocrisy, and we're not going to get far tonight. In fact, the introduction is the message, okay? Um, More or less. And we're going to come back next week and hammer out verses 2 through 18. So just bear with me. And actually, while I'm explaining this, we're going to take the Lord's Prayer and pull it aside. I'll explain this a little bit at the end and handle that after so we can actually spend some time looking at prayer. But, uh, but before we get started, let me give you a little bit more on hypocrisy. It's going to be, again, a long introduction, so bear with me. Officially defining hypocrisy, we would say this, and this is how Jesus talked about it in Matthew 23. Hypocrisy is to say one thing and do another. And I looked up all sorts of fancy definitions. That's really the easiest way to say it. To say one thing and do another. Or to hold somebody to a higher standard than what you live yourself. C.S. Lewis said it this way, quote, We consciously or subconsciously put forward a better image of ourselves than really exists. The outward appearance of our character and the inner reality do not match, end quote. That's true, I think. Um, The word hypocrite is mentioned in verse 2, verse 5, verse 16, and it's a prominent, chapter through, prominent theme throughout this whole chapter. Uh, and if you remember, that word for hypocrite was used in the ancient Greek to speak not of a hypocrite that we would think of, but they use it to refer to a, uh, an actor or a, a, a playwright or, or somebody who would pretend. It was a person who would get up on stage and put on a mask and literally become someone who they were not. That's what the word meant. And we understand this because if you, if you go and watch a movie and see what Hollywood has done... Everybody on that stage is a hypocrite in the the sense of this word, right? They are acting something that's not legitimate in their lives. So two examples of this, of of really good hypocrites or really good actors. The first is a guy named Russell Crowe. You might remember he made a movie in the year 2000 called Gladiator. Just a phenomenal movie, all sorts of of awards for it. We see him as a hero that's larger than life. He is a one-man army. He defies an emperor and saves Rome, and he is given an Oscar for Best Actor for his performance. And really, it's just, it is a very solid performance. You believe that he is Maximus. I mean, it couldn't be played by another person, right? He just owns the role. Okay, most of you probably don't know this because a lot of you are younger, but the very next year, 2001, a movie came out called *The Beautiful Mind. You guys remember this? Yeah. Okay. It's a story of, a, of a, a, a true story of a paranoid, schizophrenic PhD named Dr. John Nash. And Russell Crowe plays this character with now his hair combed down to the side and glasses, and he wears kind of this nerdy outfit uh, from Boston or somewhere on the East Coast. I think it's MIT. He's a nerdy little scientist, a shell of a man, suffering from this mental illness, chasing all these demons around that don't really exist. And you, you watch the difference between Gladiator and this little man, and it's the same guy. And you're going, how is that possible? And I think it's one of the high points of acting. and He got robbed because he should have gotten Best Actor in 2001 also for that, but he didn't. But it's a really interesting comparison of what this means. Then the second person that I would say that I think is just a phenomenal actor is Johnny Depp. He, he's weird, right, but he's remarkable, and the roles that he has been in show how, much, how different a person can be when playing different roles. He's gotten into so many different um, characters. He's not typecast, like Matthew McConaughey, who has to be in a really cheesy romantic movie. Or uh, a Keanu Reeves, who has to be in a really cheesy alien movie. Or even like, maybe like a Nicolas Cage, who just has to be cast in a bad movie. <laughs> this guy, Johnny Depp, is he's, he's legit. He's legit. Not all those movies are are blockbusters, but they're all really good. So you think about you think about Sweeney Todd, which I would not recommend seeing. but It's a movie about a homicidal barber. Okay, um, he is Willy Wonka, the weird Willy Wonka, right? He plays the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. In the movie Public Enemies, he's a gangsta. He plays in one character. He plays Ichabod Crane, uh, the Headless Horseman, etc. He was Edward Scissorhands. The Lone Ranger, and of course, Jack Sparrow, where he received somewhere around 50 to $75 million for the last movie he made. And they're filming a fifth, and I read an article that was talking about how um, they may replace him with somebody else, but how can you replace him? You can't, you can't he is the role, right? He is Jack Sparrow, and so they're at his mercy if they're going to make another movie because you can't do it without him. That's how good he is. That's how much he makes you believe that he's that character, now that's how the Bible describes hypocrisy. It describes it as somebody that is looks one way and or is one way on stage and then acts a completely different way in their own private life. Think about this. You get on stage every morning when you walk, wake up, and go out into the world. Your parents and your roommates and your spouses know the real you. Right? That's the person at home. You go out there and you put on that face and that smile. You come in this room. Nobody knows what you're really carrying behind that smile. And the bottom line is that is the actor in you. Oh, yeah, everything's great. And you're crumbling, right? Jesus said in Matthew 15:7. 7. And I don't mean to compare this to you, but he's talking about hypocrisy. He says, you hypocrites, Pharisees. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is, all, is far away from me. Because we come into a room like this and we say, yes, I love God. And yes, I will sing. And yes, I'll listen and take notes. But all week long, we've lived as if God doesn't exist. We've lived for ourselves. Now, I want to be careful because in the scriptures, we're, we're still defining a hypocrite here. I told us to be long. Um, it's, it's defined in the scriptures as someone who doesn't know Christ. In the Bible, a hypocrite is not a Christian. Okay, just keep that in mind. Jesus rails on these people because the character of their life is about pleasing others and living for self and not for him. But he describes them as whitewashed tombs, concealed graves, tares among wheat, wolves in sheep's clothing, blind guides, fools, and even sons of hell in Matthew 23. It's a pretty tough description. Suffice to say, they are not true followers of Christ. In fact, Jesus says that judgment will be more severe for hypocrites. That is those who know the truth but fail to do it. I would say safely that there is a place reserved in hell. The deepest pit of hell is reserved for the devil. The second deepest pit is reserved for Judas. He went to his own place, the Bible says. He 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 chose to reject Christ and to live that life with the greatest knowledge. I remember Steve Lawson mm-hmm. preaching at Resolved, and he said this: don't go to hell from resolved. In the light of the scripture, you would still choose to live this external life and then, and then go away. But anyway, hypocrites, uh, however, can be hard to identify. I want to give you a guide how to spot a hypocrite really quickly, just a few points. If you want to know if you're a hypocrite, if there are hypocrites around you, here's all you can find out. First, watch their life. Watch their life. It's going to be obvious pretty quickly. They will say one thing and do another. I remember Mark McElroy i um, telling me he works with me. He's a community group leader. When he first got to the master's college, he was playing baseball. Don't think he was a Christian. And he walks into Grace Community Church and MacArthur's preaching and he's going, this is painful. Like the lights are down. It's warm in here. It's comfortable. I'm falling asleep. This is, I'm like, it's crazy. And then he looks over and he sees this beautiful young woman, a, a, a co-ed just down the road, his now wife. And in an effort to win her over and woo said strumpet in the words of Johnny Depp he he, in the subsequent weeks moved closer and closer and closer and sat next to her and started taking just furious notes even though he could care less what MacArthur was saying that's hypocrisy right you watch his life on one avenue he doesn't care but he's doing something to impress her and it worked but he got saved and everything worked out okay (laughs) so watch their life Jesus said in Matthew 7, you will know the tree by its fruit. A good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. It's all there. Watch their life. It'll be clear. Second, hypocrites live for the approval of others. You watch them. You watch them follow people and maneuver themselves and play politics and try to put themselves in a position to talk to certain people and and avoid other people because they want to try to rise up some social ladder. They have an appetite to look good before others. Jesus said in John 12... 43, they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They want their friends or their staff person, their pastor, their boss, their parents, everybody to heap praise upon them. And what appears to be pious and selfless religion is really just a hidden form of pleasing yourself. But the Bible reminds us, and we'll see, that God is the audience. He is the one who matters and not those around us. Uh, It's hard. Oh, never mind. I'm not going to say that. That doesn't matter. Okay, so that whole point is they live for the approval of us. Next, they find joy in obedience. They find no joy in obedience. They find no joy in obedience. Christianity is re- reduced for them to a list of do's and don'ts. I can't drink. I can't party. I can't hang out with those people. I can't have sex. I can't watch R-rated movies. This is just miserable, right? It's all about how God limits my freedoms. How God takes away my opportunities. How God denies me of the fun that I want to have. I do the right things because I'm supposed to, because my parents want me to, because I don't want to go to hell. There's no joy. God is a cosmic killjoy who takes away the fun and leaves dull religious people. It's all about obligation and even duty. It's not about love and joy. But 1 John 5, 3 says that those who love God, it says this, for this is the love of God. You love God, this is the proof of it, that we will keep his commandments. We'll obey, like we already talked about. Watch this. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's like walking downhill. It's easy. I want to obey. Because my heart has changed. That's the whole point. There's joy and happiness in that. Ultimately, if there's no joy, then there's no relationship. Next is because they're not broken. I would say hypocrites aren't broken. Or hypocrites have hard hearts either over sin or over the loss. Their hearts have never broken. I just thought I would illustrate this with my little tray full of of goodies here so you guys can see this really quickly somehow. So I'd say this. A Christian that loves Christ is a lot like this stick of butter. That when something comes up in your life, an area that needs change... When the word is preached and you recognize you don't line up perfectly, the heart that follows heart after God, when you see that and the Spirit of God presses you, it's like, it's just like this, just going straight. Yeah, easy that was, right? Just so easy. Soft heart. It's like John 3, the wind blows, the Spirit blows through the trees. You don't know where it comes from, where it's going. But when the Spirit touches you, you're willing to move wherever. Right? It's just a soft heart. God, I want to follow you. That's the heart of the Christian right? Soft heart, I want to be obedient. And then you move on, and sometimes our hearts aren't, aren't that soft, right? And they're more like this pound cake, and you need a little bit of a
0: <laughs> I don't know, I found
1: this in the drawer. You need a little bit of bigger, a bigger tool to get through it. It doesn't go as easy as just does through a pat of butter. God needs to get your attention. He needs to speak a little bit louder. And so cutting through that takes a sharper knife, a little more pain, a little more energy, but still not so bad. When you talk about a hypocrite, you talk about somebody whose heart is stone cold like this rock. The heart has become so enamored with sin and has drifted so far from Christ that it's like this hard rock. The messages are preached. The group leader calls. You read your Bible, but there's really no change. There's nothing going on in your heart. It's just hard. And at some point, if you belong to him, I'm not going to do this. But God will take the hammer. In Jeremiah, it says that, is not, is not my word like a hammer that smashes rock? And he will take this and break your heart. And sometimes that's what it takes for all of us. We've all been there in those times where we need God to sweep through and really get a hold of us. We've all had those times. I don't want to live here right? That's hypocrisy. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm living for other people, not for God. My heart is hard. I want to live here, right? With a soft heart where God whispers and I'm ready to change. I'm his man, right? I, I want to have a heart like his. And so, but, but hypocrites are hard-hearted. They're not broken over sin, over the lost. And hypocrites don't apply truth. Next, they, if, if you, and I think this is the last one. Yeah, just give them time. If you want to find a hypocrite, just give it time. They will be evident in time. People can put on a show for a while. People can look for time, but the true nature will always come out, given enough time. It will. That's, that's the situation. First John 2:19 says, "They went out from us, for they were not of us. For if they were really of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. It's a lot of weird things there, but the bottom line is this: Christians remain, and Christians are faithful. And those who are hypocrites will eventually say, ah, I'm done. I'm out of here, and they leave. So, long intro. That's a long, that's, what, that's how you spot a hypocrite. That's what a hypocrite is. Hope all that's helped for you as background for these next couple of weeks. It's time for a very short message. I've only got seven points. Now, verse one says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now, I... St- I, I had eight points but I cut it down to seven. And uh, and somehow they magically all start with the letter P. So I was a little I was I was just I was inspired being at Shepherd's conference, all the alliteration of the guys preaching, so I just made this work. So I'm gonna this will be quick. Point number one in this text. Point number one. What? Arthur, you're good. Point number one. This is a this is a command given by Christ. This first word, "Beware of practicing righteousness," is is an imperative, and it comes down: "Beware of practicing righteousness." Okay, so start your engines. Point number one: This is a powerful command. This is a powerful command. It falls from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. This is a red letter verse, and the command doesn't come from an apostle. This command about avoiding hypocrisy doesn't come from a prophet. It's not even delivered by an angel or some other emissary. It falls from the very lips of the lawgiver himself. This is an order of orders from none other than the commander-in-chief. And when he speaks, his people must listen and obey. God opens his word and opens his mouth and says, Be careful, beware, command, listen, apply. He spoke once, and the universe sprang into existence. When he speaks again, it will dissolve with fire. Every molecule that exists in the universe today obeys his every command. From the single-celled amoeba to the largest blue whale, from the stars that he placed in the heavens to the deepest recesses of the earth, all obey his word perfectly. Every creature, great and small, every inanimate object... Every scientific law and natural force that's in our universe obeys his commands. And here he speaks to the very pinnacle of his creation, those who are made in his image. And he says, I'm issuing a divine imperative and we must listen. We must listen. It is powerful. Number two, this is a protective command. It is a protective command. Chapter six opens with the word beware. Beware. It's, this is protection for you. Be careful. Christian, pay attention. Be on your guard against practicing your righteousness before men. Be on your guard against hypocrisy. The command that, exi- that prohibits this starts as a word of warning. It reminds me of the NASCAR race where um, there's a problem on the track, an accident happens, and the other drivers don't know. And so what do they do at the checkpoint? They, fl- they fly- flash what? Yellow. Megan, that was good. You be bold. Say it out loud. Yellow. The yellow... Caution flag. That's right. It's called a yellow caution flag. You know, they, yes, they take a the yellow flag and they wave that thing. And what does it tell you? Something's wrong. Slow down, right? It's a warning flag. And as each put, put, blah, 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 car passes the checkpoint, everybody knows slow down and be careful. Pay attention. There's something you need to be aware of up ahead. And it's designed to protect the drivers so they don't get into a more complicated problem. Here Jesus is waving the red excuse me the yellow flag. The flag is up and Jesus is saying, "Okay, caution, be aware. Are you listening? It is a big deal. You need to see this. If you practice your righteousness before men, that is if you live to please men instead of God, there is a huge damning problem. And up, up along the turn of your life, if you don't sort this out, there will be a big issue called judgment up ahead." Matthew twenty three twenty four and speaking of that end point, says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He ate different woes to them. He's bringing them down as hypocrites. And he says, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. They go into their herb garden that they have in their backyards, and they take their herbs out, and they take and cut off 10% of the herbs, and they give those to the church or to the temple. They literally were, were tithing on their herb garden. of their salt, 10% of their pepper, that kind of stuff. But he says, you're you're, you're so awesome because you tithe all of this. That's how righteous you are. But it says, but you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You, You boneheads, there's a camel in your drink and a gnat... And so instead of getting the hairy camel out of there, you go and get the oh, and get gnat out. And then you just drink the camel. It's, just, it's dumb, right? That's what they were doing. So anyway, this is a protective command. Jesus is saying, be aware. I'm, I'm speaking to you to help you. Point number three, it's a persistent command. This is a persistent command. This is in the present active imperative in the Greek. That is to say, this is to be practiced continually in your life. There is never a moment when this command won't matter for you, Christian. Hypocrisy was in your life the day you were saved. Hypocrisy is in your life today. And you are to continue to stand your guard, fighting against the sin every day of your Christian life until you stand in glory, perfect before the Lord. There is not a day this side of heaven where you will be free from the sin. On the contrary, you are to engage in this battle against your flesh, which desires to please men and please yourself and to put God on the shelf. Jesus knows our tendency to do that, so he keeps this right in front of us with this persistent command. Point number four, this is a personal command. It's a personal command. I I, I love this. Jesus brings this imperative to your eyes, my Christian friends. It is, in the words of the text, your righteousness that you are warned about. This is your Father who is in heaven. This is personal. This is directed to you. This is concerned with your soul. It's like somebody telling you, "Hey, you need to pay attention because somebody is accessing your bank account and spending your money." If you got a warning like that, and not just that somebody accessed Bank of America, right, and that they had gone to somebody else's—no, this is your account. They're taking your money. You need to do something and be concerned. It's personal to you. Jesus is saying, "This is your soul, right? This is your future." This is your life. You need to be concerned. And you can't run from this. You can't avoid this. It comes to every Bible toting, every church going, Christian school kid, a wanna loving, homeschool graduating person who memorizes scripture or faithfully attends Bible study. This comes to all of us. Every single person. Jesus says, This is your Father. This is your righteousness. This is your soul. It's a a warning given to people who are religious, people who are spiritual. People who read their Bibles. This is a warning given to people who pray. In the text he says, when you pray, expected that you do pray. This is the people who do give. This is the people who do fast, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks and figure out. This is the people who do listen to sermons. I mean, they're sitting there listening to Christ preach, right? Just like you're sitting listening to me tonight. The warning, in other words, is to people just like us. Nay, the warning is to us. It is directed at you. It is directed at me. And Christian, you must listen. You must be aware. Jesus speaks to your heart. He is appealing to your soul. He wants your attention on this area of your life. Don't ignore him. Point number five. This is a pride-crushing command. It is a pride-crushing command. That is to say that your best efforts, the very best that you can do, If you were to do all that you can like the Pharisees in your own human effort, it is not enough to please God. In fact, God is not impressed with even your most religious works. He uses the phrase there to practice your righteousness, right? To speak of what we do and how we live. And for most people, the good deeds that they do is their barometer on how well God accepts them or not, right? The more good you do, the happier God is with you. That's why people give to charity, That's why um, people volunteer their time. This is why Hollywood actors get on their soapboxes to talk about their efforts with fresh water. And I went to this third world country once and I filmed a movie and now I'm concerned about these people. And I've got $150 million in the bank, but maybe all of you can give $50 to help these people over there, right? And this is like Leonardo DiCaprio after accepting his Oscar speech for almost freezing to death, standing there and saying, we got a problem with global warming. And I'm the one to tell you, it's like it's so ridiculous, but this is what they do. In an effort to feel better about themselves, they're they're trying to do good deeds so that that people will look at them and say, wow, how great that person is, and ultimately God will accept them. The human heart, in an effort to try to earn favor with God, do good things. That's, That's what a man pleaser does. But when you stop to think about this, all this is... A man-pleasing is basically your way of having people look back at you and say, Wow, that's a really good guy. That's a really good girl. I'm really impressed with them. And ultimately, it fuels your own pride. And here's what it does. It doesn't give glory to God. It gives glory to Sean or to Goggles or to whoever else. That's the point. Uh, It's its own... Hypocrisy, I could say, is its own religion. Hypocrisy is idolatry because it puts, takes God off the throne and it puts you on the throne. When you practice your righteousness before men, you are saying, look at how good I am and what I can do. And the pride-crushing doctrine of our depravity and our sin says that there's nothing good enough that I can do. My self-righteousness, in fact all of my righteousness, is not enough to please God. It isn't. Even my best deeds are like filthy rags. And I, I need the righteousness of another to fix my problem. And so I think this hits us to say no matter how good you think you are, even if you're as good as the Pharisees, 520 or 521 says that your righteousness must even exceed their efforts to, to please God. That doesn't, just doesn't happen. In short, our righteousness damns us, and we need Christ's. So that's point number six. This is a plain command. It's a plain command, it's pretty straightforward. There's not a lot here. You don't need to interpret or really explain this, even though I've taken 50 minutes to do so. If you live for the approval of others, you have no reward with God. There it is. If you live for others, God doesn't see you. This is all or nothing. This is one or the other. This is an all-in statement. Everything gets pushed across the table. You're either all-in pursuing the glory of God, or you're all-out keeping that and hoarding that glory for yourself. It's pretty clear which is why it's so scary that there are people in 721 who get all the way to the judgment seat of Christ and they say, Lord, Lord, look at all we did. All of our self-righteous acts. All these things we did in your name. And Jesus says what? Depart from me. I'm sorry, I don't know you. Depart from me. And he says, you who practice lawlessness because the heart and the action are not engaged together. If your motivation for service to the Lord is for anything but the the glory of God, then your heart is off. But isn't that the heart cry of the Christian? Jesus is center. Jesus is king. Jesus is to be praised and to be lifted up in my life. I am nothing. I want to live to extol his name and see him put on display and others bow down and worship him. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter where he has me serving. If it's shoveling um, dirt, or if it's preaching, or if it's serving food, or if it's singing, or if it's in the back where nobody knows, it doesn't matter. I just want to serve Christ. John Newton said this, quote, if two angels were to receive at the same moment a commission from God, one to go down and rule earth's grandest empire, and the other to go and sweep the streets of its meanest village, it would be a matter of entire indifference to each which service fell to his lot, the post of ruler or the post of scavenger. Now watch this. For the joy of the angels lies only in obedience to God's will. And with equal joy, they would lift Lazarus and his rags to Abraham's bosom or be a chariot of fire to carry Elijah home. End quote. The angels get it. Life is about Christ. He is on the throne. He is to be praised. And the command here is simple. It's simple. Live for others and damn your soul. Live for others, live for man, not for the glory of God, and you have no reward with Him. That takes us to the final point. This is a profitable command. This is profitable. This verse speaks And this section speaks of a reward. There is a reward. You and I are built to desire reward. We are driven by reward. Our whole existence is predicated on that fact. You go to work because after you work your 40 hours, you get what? Money. So you can go buy food. And you can have a place to live and clothes and go out with your friends. That's the reward of your work. You go to the gym to get ripped, right? (laughs) You ask a girl out and court a girl and go through all this effort to get a girlfriend. Why? So you can get married and enjoy the fruit of all of that labor. You plant a vineyard. I don't know if any of you have, but you would. So you can enjoy its fruits. Here it is. You work for the king so that in the future you can enjoy the rewards in his kingdom. We are built to desire reward. There's nothing wrong with that. It is how you've been made. There should be a desire. In Hebrews 11, they are saying, put me back in jail. I want a better resurrection. Take my head off of my body. Don't set me free because I'm living for the next life and a greater reward. And that leaves the Hebrews 12 Where Jesus, it says this, that that even Jesus was driven by the reward. In 12.3, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, right? Jesus, even from the cross, was looking to the reward. So this command is profitable. To live for God brings great profit and great reward. And we'll see that as the chapter unfolds. Okay. This was a short message, and I went really long, so I got to end. Uh, but, but the very important principle in this text, pretty crystal clear: hypocrisy is a damning sin. And, and as for us as Christians, we need to evaluate our lives to see if we're living for ourselves or living for God. And what Jesus is going to do in the next 18 verses is lay out three examples by which religious people uh, put their hypocrisy on display and live for others. He starts with giving. <laughs> He moves on to prayer, and then he talks about fasting. Three areas of the Christian life that people do so that they can be noticed by others or give praise to God. We'll look at all of that the next time we're together. Okay? Giving, giving, praying, and fasting. All right, we're done. You guys are awesome. Close your Bibles. Let's pray. You're, uh, with your heads bowed, just for a minute, just spend a moment with the Lord. Evaluate where your heart is before Him. Maybe you're like, maybe you're like that stick of butter, and your heart is soft tonight. Just ask the Lord: Is there any small, small course corrections that need to happen in your life? Maybe you're like the loaf of bread that needs a little more effort, and you've drifted a bit, and Tonight I'd encourage you to ask the Lord to draw you back. If you find that your heart is hard like the rock and that not even these words have penetrated, not even the words talking about hypocrisy have gotten deep into your heart, then you know there's some work that needs to be done between you and God. And I would encourage you to do business with Him and to ask him, if necessary, to take out the hammer and to crush you so that you can be made soft and right in his presence. We are so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you continually chase after us, us men-pleasers, us hypocrites, that you went to the cross to buy us back when we were even your enemies. And even as your children, as we still sometimes live in our sin, Yet you love us and are faithful to chase us down. And someday we will be in your presence and you will even give us a reward. We will share in your reward. I don't understand that, but I'm so thankful for it. Lord, I pray that this text would leave no heart untouched. As your spirit moves, that you would draw us nearer to Christ. It's all because of what Jesus has done that we can even draw into your presence. Thank you for that tonight. It's in his name we pray, amen.